0: Over and 3 Miles Down: A History of Mining, Miners and Their Families in Castlecomer, County
1: Kilkenny. Hello and welcome to 3 Miles Over and 3 Miles Down, which tells the rich history and heritage of the Castlecomer mines. In this series, we'll hear the history of the mines and mining in the Castlecomer area of Kilkenny from prehistory to 1969 when the mines closed, ending centuries of iron and coal mining in the area and the surrounding Leinster coalfield. In this programme, we hear about the lives of those who worked in the Deer Park mine. We walk the old mine overground and hear the stories of the miners' lives underground. When you drive out past the Deer Park mine, it's hard to imagine how large it was and the associated mines were. Mara Downey, a local historian who has written comprehensively about the mines, gives a sense of the scale involved in the 20th century.
2: Uh, Overhead cables brought the coal from outlying pits uh, for screening and and grading and loading at the Deer Park from where a branch railway line connecting the collieries to the Great Southern and Western Railway at Dunmore near Kilkenny. The branch railway ran three times a day to Kilkenny City, carrying 100 tonnes on each journey. Motor lorries, tractor trailers and carts drawn by horses, ponies, ginnets and donkeys were also used to transport the coal throughout the local area to the coal depots at Kilkenny, Dublin and Bunclody throughout the entire country, and throughout the entire country. Uh, The Dew Park pit generated its own electric current by steam generators. But in 1937, power from the Electricity Supply Board National Grid became available and additional electric current was supplied from this source. Um, During the peak period for electricity from November to March, the colliery source supplemented the ESB supply. Three power lines went to the pit at three thirty thousand volts, and this was used in the various machines in the pit. From about 1945, most of the mining was done by machine, using electric coal cutters, underground conveyors, haulages, and pumps. And pumping was the pumping of the water was one of the most costly items, as some sixty thousand gallons had to be pumped out every hour. And the operations. Uh, Provided employment for many different tradesmen who were needed to keep the pits and related equipment in efficient running order. There were skilled workers engaged in making wagons, mending engines, sharpening tools, and preparing the timber props. Firemen were responsible for setting the gelignite to break up the rock. A hole was bored into the coal surface and filled with explosives and the skill was in knowing just where to place the charges and how much gelignite to use so that the coal would be accessible but the mine would neither collapse nor explode. Mine carpenters um, placed timbers to shore up the caverns left when the coal had been extracted. The timbers were simply logs supplied from the estate woodlands and they needed no chemical treatment to prevent decay because bacteria didn't flourish in the dismal environment of the mines, although they were subject to rotting from the effects of the surplus water. There were rangers and watchmen for security, banksmen who supervised the weighing and the unloading of trams, surface workers who carried out a multitude of tasks, such as moving the wagons, stoking boilers, working the tippers, picking, washing and cleaning the coal, carmen and carters who transported the coals, and sales and office staff and management. About a 1,000 men were employed either directly or indirectly in the coal coal industry during the 1920s and 30s, and by the 1950s this number had declined to about 450. The Collier Managers Report in 1954 reviewed the previous four years and gives details of 360 underground workers and 101 on the surface.
1: One other fact that will surprise you when viewed in today's terms is the ages of the miners when they started. Apprentices essentially left primary school to travel down the mine, usually following their fathers. Theresa Farrell's father and brother worked in the deer park and she tells us succinctly and eloquently what that meant to the two men.
3: One of my brothers, he started in the coal mine, he was almost 14 years old. And when he went down, he had to go down to Copley's to the bottom of the mine. And when he got down to the bottom, he met the fireman, who was Tommy Byrne from Love Lane. And when Tommy saw him, he said, oh, have you come to see your father? And uh, he said, I have, I've come to meet him. And he said, well, you see the light in the distance, he said, that's where your father is. And when he went, when he got, uh, he had to crawl on his hands and knees, my brother, to get to where my father was. And when he got to him, the only words my father said to him, you made it then. That was all he said. He never said no more to him. And I found that quite profound that my brother wasn't even 14 and he he's going down all the way down to this mine, crawling on his hands and knees to get to his father and his father just saying, you made it then. I find that very, you know, I really do.
1: The Deer Park mine closed in 1969 and is completely flooded now. So we were only able to go to the opening of the mine itself. Some remnants of buildings remain and Seamus Walsh spoke to me about them and the memories that they bring back.
4: Like my friend Jen O'Neill used to say the black pad to the Deer Park. That's when miners would be going across the field like it has most of the time it would be raining and to be was washing the, the dust off of the miner down into the into the field. And with the constant, there would be oh, about hundreds of miners walking across the field home, that was bound to leave the Black Path and it was there for years after the pit be closing down. Just a, a, a sorrowful reminder of what men used to do. Right. Right. That's the, the low landing and the high landing. And the train used to come out from Kilkenny, up up with that pier there where you see there. And you could see all the cubicles up under the landing there. Where the wagons would be shoved in under them. would be shunted in and they'd hold about 20 tonne of coal. And there'd be eight, eight or ten big piled wagons going to Kilkenny every single evening of the week. And when the piece was going really well, the train came out here twice a day. You know. But it Wannister got his maiden voyage in 1921 and Wannister one sort of hounded the government for to get the. the the railway line out to the deer park, and that happened in some time in 1930. April 1962 was the last train, and I remember it was the very same as if santy was going back after Christmas, going on down towards Field, and the man was doing this out to the side of it, never to be seen again in Castlecomer. Yeah, within a few weeks they were rising the bars and the railway tracks, and it was, it was as if there was never a mine or a, never a, a train here and we used to do this to the driver to, to give us a hoot and he, he'd lift us out well, of no, the lads would get a terrible fright you know and you'd hear this water going you know so some of the boys would hop down into the wagon and get a home you know illegally of course to be doing it
1: and we're, we're walking along where the miners would have walked every yeah, day yeah yeah and coming up coming up here i mean looking across there you can actually see yeah. the
4: if you look that's look the forge where they used to make the make the tools for the miners the picks and shovels and wedges that's the sawmill that used to put up the props for them for the pit and if, the, if it was for copleys the two foot props if it was for the capro 18 inch props and that's the workshop there uh, where everything was repaired and you see that small little house over there with the two doors that's the magazine that looks very tame now and harmless looking but in, in the late 60s when the Troubles was in the north that was full of jelly night and there was a 24 hour guard in it, seven days a week that's the, that's the bottom of Beltshape that's the rim, what's the remains of Tape now
1: and that was that was the same stuff that the column balls were made of
4: yeah. no that was, that was the slack from the pit the column balls were made from the, the column that came along with the coal so if it wouldn't be all coal it'd be in the box it'd be column as well but that was the slack that was all loaded by hand by the miners you know 375 yards high just going up into the clouds you, couldn't, you wouldn't see and the crowd of women from the near park used to come and pick the bags of coal and they'd pick half bags of coal and throw them up on the shoulder and no bother on them you know they made a handy few shillings for their
1: Above ground, one of the biggest challenges was getting from the coal face to the distribution centre in the Deer Park. Not all coal could be transported using horse and cart and it wasn't efficient in any event. Willie Jo Mealy explained to me the engineering
5: solution they came up with. There wasn't great means of getting transport transporting the coal with the horse and cars down to the Deer Park. But they they set up this endless rope. They called it a rope by buckets where there'd be about maybe 40 or 50 buckets on it. One bucket could carry four, maybe to 500th of coal. And they'd load that at the rock pit and let it down. And it was um, a gravity type pull. The weight of one of of the of the coal, would bring the empties back up again. It was engineered that when the the, the forty or so um, buckets of coal would get down to the right point in the Deer Park Yard to be distributed in, into the screens and so forth. At that time, the empty ones would be pulled back up. The waste of the coal going down. Would pull the empty ones back up, to be loaded again, and vice versa. The same thing had happened, as the ones were being emptied in the deer park, for distribution. The the cycle continued. That was a great bit of engineering. It passed over land, and it was a a sight to see. You know, and there were stanchions along the way to support the rope, here and there in fields. You know the same as the power lines now. Frankie Mealy showed me around
1: the back of the house and in the distance was a remnant of that old rope solution. He also explained to me that it wasn't always used to transport coal.
0: You see that house sets there, just, just opposite us there. Right. Now the aerial rope came across there. You see the trees, the, the uh, grove of trees up there? Yeah. Now, that aerial rope came across there. From one of the collieries I forget what the name of it was um, and right across here that field there it would have been almost to the left of that house as you're looking at it now and across the it would have crossed the main road and that would go directly down to the mines now there was only one more that I'm aware of of those platforms Concrete platforms that held the structure that carried the the coal on the ropeway. Uh, now, also known as people used to t- hire uh, uh, apart from dumping, <laughs> uh, people used to to take a lift on the uh, to get to get back home if they were from this area down here. They could actually ride on the, the, the coal down. Was
1: it, was it not dangerous?
0: Of course it was dangerous. The, the danger was second nature to them at the time, you know, because the mines were much worse than any, anything you could, um,
1: you know, um, compare with. Back in the Deer Park mine, Seamus Waltz showed me the remnants of the pulley system as it appeared in the mine itself, and also told me about how one mine manager had an enterprising way of solving a particular problem.
4: See over in the distance, you see the mast over there. That's the rock pit up there, up in the upper hills. There was a, an aerial rope coming from there as well. You'd think you think you're in the Alps, you know the way the, the you know, when you're going up skiing. So that's all these buckets would be going around. It'd be empty buckets going to, back towards Skihana, but the full one coming down. One one place, one of the fields up here, the the bucket used to come fairly near the the grass, and there was an old farmer used to go through the long pole like this, and he would shake the the Bucket and um, there'd be lumps of coal falling out of it. So, Beltcliffe was the manager at the time mm-hmm. and he knew there was somebody taking the coal. So, he got into an empty bucket mm-hmm. and the man, the farmer, came out and he was going to touch the grass and he shaking his bucket. Out falls Beltliffe out in the field. Oh, there, was, there was great mileage got out of that.
1: There was one place of great importance to the miners in their daily working lives as they walked to the pit. A grotto to Our lady was on the path to the mine and many of the men knelt in prayer before they went to work each day. Willie Jo Mealy is a local historian and writer and he tells me about their particular devotion.
5: You have lucky escapes but you talked earlier on that there was no health and safety. There was a health and safety in it and that was where they knelt in front of the statue of Our blessed lady. They relied upon her She was their health and safety. She provided, she didn't work all the time, but in their mind, it was working for them. Once they knelt down and prayed to her and and asked her for keeping safe, that, that was their safety. And they relied upon her right, even when it closed, right up to the time they died. And you know, they're still relying upon her. Seamus Walsh explains the
1: origin of the grotto itself. In
4: 1954, the Marian year, they put a statue there. And um, the miners would be praying there for 20 minutes at a time. The young lads would run past me, they wouldn't even see it. But after a while, when they'd be in the pit for a few years, they'd, they'd realise how important prayer was. So uh, miners were superstitious, but they were also very very holy people. They were lads, I see men with rosary beads and everything. Sure, remember at the time of the Valley Hospital when the, the statues were moving? We had our lady here and she was bound off looking over at these old sheds and, you know, so she moved down to the side of the clock road and she's looking up at us now. Yeah.
1: There's an inscription on the statue and as we walked around the old mine, Seamus read the inscription for me.
4: In memory of all the men and boys who worked hundreds of feet below the ground to earn a living in tribute to our great women who were the backbone of the mining community, supporting and caring for their menfolk. In memory of all those who lost their lives or were injured in the mine, may they be at peace with the Lord, out of the shadows, into the light.
1: As we've heard, there were many trades and roles in the mines. Every worker had to start somewhere and serve their time, learning from the previous generation of miners. Mick Brennan-Rowe served his time underground and learned the value of silence, among other valuable lessons. Well, initially
6: I started uh, when I went down in the mines. After two weeks, I was sent to an old man, Mark Brennan, and he was my tutor, learning me how to walk, talk, not when not to talk, not to whistle, not to be singing or noise. Silence in the mine was uh, You had to have a silence because you had to have a listening ear for something falling. What we used to call dribbling, had to be little stones coming down, you know, small little stones. You moved away from that because it was going to close in or it was threatening to close in. Maybe not that day, but it would be within a week anyway. But... (coughs) He showed me what to do, and the first day down, and I was walking along, uh, the road would be about four foot high, a little over, and they'd say, down, the man in front of you said, down. That was where there'd be a lower part, you'd have to go down lower. And you went down, and uh, this man said, tapped me in the shoulder, don't walk there, sonny. <coughs> you could use the family jewels. I was walking over a steel rope and I could slap up you see and be, yeah. that never left that mind since that you were learning from the day you went down you never taught anyone what to do They learn when I got older they learned from you but you didn't teach them because you couldn't teach them and you know they had to look at you and go work that way then eventually I came and I was sent in a hauler. That's what you'd be pulling the coal up, letting down empty ones. And then it was promoted to a bigger hauler, which would be a back and a front rope. And, be, uh, and the roads went up and down, you know, there'd be hills and hollows and, and so on. <clears throat> could be 500, 800 yards long, the road had to be, which is half a mile. But even though you might never see that road, you knew every bit of it. Someone said, where are you now? You'd be able to tell him where they were, how where where much rope has gone on the drum, or how much was gone off of the drum. That's what I'm saying, you're sitting by Nelly, you're learning all the time the whistling was completely out for the reason you you were drowning out, the sound of the pebbles falling. As I said, I worked a hauler, I followed the rope, that's to be when you would be going along with the rounds of coal and taking off the rope and you know, draining on t- empty tubs going back and <coughs> I pushed, there was a man called a hurrier, a trammer that he'd be pushing the, by hand, and he'd have a pusher, and you'd be there to give him a hand, helping him. A road-maked, making roads driving through the summit and, you know, making them higher or making them lower, if I ever to, wanted to go. Uh, I feel cold. We done everything every job in it.
1: Miners worked in clearances of about eighteen inches. If you want to visualize that on a typical chair, the distance between the seat of that chair and the floor is about eighteen inches. But as Mick explained to me, it also had as much to do with the length of one of the mining tools that the men used.
6: It was a tool that couldn't be done without there because the hammer there was eighteen inches between the bars of the track. That the tubs went on. That's how you measured where to put the nail in to put the, the keep the there. 18 inches went to measure the height <coughs> or uh, what length you wanted the prop to put in. You know, 18 inches. It was you know, it was everything. A miner measured. By his hands. Never measure by your hands. There's a foot. Be near enough.
1: So your full your four hands spread out is yeah. near enough
6: to a foot. foot. And that's how you measured. <coughs> you know, yeah, you, you could take a bit off of a prop but you couldn't put a bit to it. Mm-hmm. They had props oak oh, pl- planks, different types of timber. Mm-hmm. Girders. Well, you know the tracks of the railway line? Yeah. They bought them and cut them six foot, eight foot, twelve foot, whatever they want, and they were for the wide roads and built. Then there was timbers put from one girder to the next, you know, sealing it off. They had props, oak oh, pl- planks, different types of timber, girders. Well, you know the tracks of the railway line. Yeah. They bought them and cut them six foot, eight foot, twelve foot, whatever they. Month. and they were for the wide roads and then there was timbers put from one order to the next you know sealing it off
1: Timmy Wilson also served his time down the mine eventually working machines at the coal face. he spoke to me about night and day when underground and the value of light
7: you I mean, got up in the morning time or in whatever shift you run. on he had the, the bathhouse Second to none, he had a place for good clothes and a place for mining clothes. And they had men there and the boilers, keeping the clothes warm and dried for for the out If the men came up out the pit and the wet clothes, they'd be dried the next morning for them. That's the most modern in Europe. When I was on the night shift now, and I'd get up, I'd go to bed and I'd come home maybe around 10 o'clock. And the sleep in the day is not the same as the night. But I'd be going every night around half 10, 20 to 11. i go, that was that was my shift. I had to be there at such a time. And if there was any man man back, they'd have to go get a, another fellow with me. There was two on the machine. And you done that, six the six nights when finish, you finished saturday morning and there was heavy dust in the machine off of the coal machine now at that time you had no gloves nor no mask or anything but i was in it for a good few years and thank god that never affected me well then i didn't smoke and there's a lot of people that I did affect affect their chest but it never affected me. They had, had a carbide lamp they had that and if that went out you wouldn't see a same. complete darkness and they had but one time they used a candle and the candle done the work then no and then they came up with a carbide lamp and then they had a the battery lamp after, all the big heavy battery lamps. But the carbine lamp was very good. And you, you bought the carbine off of the company. And you bought her, if there's no lamp. You, you pay for everything. You bought know, her, you know, lamp. It's was a big improvement from the candle when a
1: Larry Power has been mining all his adult life, serving his time in the mines in the 1960s. He told me that back then there weren't many job opportunities. Well, around here, like, uh,
8: I suppose, everyone's family had connections with the mines. You know, but in the overall uh, subject about the mines, the Leinster Coalfields wasn't recognised as a as in the geological uh, history of it, even as a, a big pine, to hold it, you know, in comparison with England, Scotland, Wales, any of them countries. You had so many seams within, and twice as high in three times higher, than Coam or any of them, you know. It just was made it so, so much went into it, and, and uh, the interest of it it because it was such a small find really. If it had been a big find you know there wouldn't be as much thought at all about it, you know. And, uh, and this was a farm as well, uh, A farming here was very poor, poor quality land. And it was terrible hardship on the land in mirrors. same as the mines, you know. I your lads talking about you're a miner and it's all hard and it wasn't hard. You know, I find it uh, everybody's hard to go out down the garden house, so the whole there, all the hair, myself and And you could uh, you could become exhausted air to it, if you want. You know. <laughs> hmm.
1: Larry Power also told me about the working conditions he experienced underground, as did Mick Brennan Rowe, and the challenges in particular of eating during the working day. I know a lot of people
8: that have never known the mind drive very young, too. <laughs> You know, and I had internal ailments as well. You know, after that diet. I suppose you could say there was hash conditions at times, but then, and the overall run of it, now the, the big part, mine, the rear part, there was great ventilation there. You know, because the regulations were carried out proper. You had your you had your uh, outlet and your, you had a big fan air fan pulling in the air through you know there's there was harder conditions now in the smaller mines because they they ignore the regulations you know and uh, which is we did at times really to be honest with you an ignorant thing to do checking chances you know well uh, but in in the big mine it was good if you were what i call a job in now, once in the coalface, base there was a great spectrum of air in it the only the worst thing to it was uh, sanitary conditions were unhuman you know that was the worst I thought you know I so just to now this huge area everyone went to South Island, you know that, that was bad part of it you know yourself because we with a, oh, you could say a story in here and around, you know. But then there was a good There was a wood there in it. That would meant a lot, you know.
6: The water would be flowing the roads be old rats and everything going through, but you would not mind. We were all your chaps we we trying to catch the rats and be we, rats were smarter than us, although we did catch them now and again.
1: And they were attracted by the sound or they were driven from another part of the mine by that?
6: No, they were attracted by the bits of bread. That, uh, you see, that's one thing, you Now, I mean. My lunch would be a bottle of tea, cold tea. And a sandwich. Could be a bread and butter, bread and butter sandwich, So you know what I mean? Wouldn't it be something to eat? But um, it'd have to be a brown bottle. Do you know, ever see a large bottle? of Guinness, I would be. The brown bottles you now. But there was a green bottle going that time and you couldn't put tea in there. to cut the tea. To be nearly green and colour, The uh, was in the glass and you couldn't drink it. But uh, yeah, you get used to
7: cold tea.
1: Timmy Wilson spoke to me about one of the greatest dangers underground when falls of earth occurred.
7: Oh, big it was often bad fogs in I remember one time we had to, we got where to go, what to go, go, make sure we got to the surface. And we had to, there was, there was one thing about it, they always kept different roads opened up, back roads. They always kept them, they had two or three men looking after them every every day. They'd have someone going through there, going what they call air courses. The air would be coming down. They'd go along. And tree, the two men or three had travelled them air courses a few times during the week to make sure that if anything they'd be able to get out. And I remember one time we had to go do it and there was a fellow with me, he was very nervous, and he said to me to me, he says, I'll never come back again in it. No he didn't. He was that nervous. He was zoned up with special and he said uh, he says to me, Take it will you take a train for me Timmy, I will, John. And I stayed with him until he was the laser when he got to the surface. He was nervous, but I wasn't nervous myself now. But you have people like that. Other than that, now it was a dangerous job. But you get used to it. And I went rock there now, or they know what they, they know what they had to do. The whole thing is securing yourself upon the cold face. Keep yourself timbering. And you would walk away. And if there's often times that cold face where the would be a call machine is, that could close down tonight and you'd have it that be going strong in two or three days again to have it work, work it out.
1: When viewed from a modern perspective, working conditions in the Deer Park were challenging, to say the least, and even unsafe. Injuries were common, and Mick Brennan-Rowe spoke to me about some of them.
6: Most injuries were eye injuries. You know, you'd be hitting a uh, bit of coal flying, hitting the eye. Uh, oh, there were serious injuries, and people killed in it, and so forth. But... Uh, uh, it's a yeah, good friends of mine now were badly injured. I was working with some of them and they got injured that through I suppose uh, mistakes being made, you know, and we <coughs> uh, electrical wires now and all the and they didn't for ignorance, we, uh, our part, as far as we know, we had him wrong. But I, I brought a man up over the mines at five o'clock in the morning. There was only three of us down in the section where we were. And his mouth was from his jawbone, bone, both jawbones machine started up on its own and bit face again decided. And the doctor here, Dr Dunn, he says, uh, you may go to the county. And he says, uh, I can't. He says, my mother is at home and around. He says, well, she's 80. Well, he says, I'll stitch you, but I should probably leave a scar. I so I held him above in the hospital there and he stitched him. Yeah, beautiful job. You could see a little line, wouldn't happen
1: Peter Keeley is a miner who worked in the Deer Park mine and indeed much of the Leinster coalfield in his time. He spoke to me about health and safety issues that would have applied at the time he worked there and how the miners managed to keep themselves safe.
9: There was a generation and generation and generation being passed down. The father warning the son, the son warning his son that the miners in the Deer Park, they were geniuses at catching a roof and keeping a very very bad dangerous roof in the deer park there were a lot of killed it very dangerous but there was expert coal miners they were the best coal miners i ever worked with I met the walking in five or six mines i worked in but the deer park was the top of the main for a bad roof it was a dangerous dirty roof to kill you it's like a roof doesn't take prisoners and them boys were very, very good. They would know to the minute that stone was going to move. Jack Daly, the Warlock and all these great workers, Paddy Slippy, the Dowds, they were brilliant corn miners. They'd never get them again. They'd never put in together, no matter what you do. There's so many safety things. And now, as a matter of fact, in the 60s, going into the 70s, the work in the Deer Park was all shovel work and hard work. But now at the moment there's machines that are coming out for doing all this work. And we give up mining when the machinery came into it. When the machines came in that could there's machines now that loaders down there instead of a lad loading forty boxes of stones a day in a shot that machines are drilling it, loading it, there's machinery for doing everything now. At that time there was nothing, that was there was a and work. Two men went together and like he said, I said, let's can see the stone moving over you or you can see it over mine, I can't see it over you. You trusted your partner a hundred percent. And he's you your life depended upon her he season. There was all men down walking in the the park and they went in they come in to say, eh you might have in a the prop there. It's dangerous. And I wasn't I was I was just walking in the Holly Park and the roof wasn't bad there, but night team were then of course had more timber than the first It then. Earlier to move, But I was coming
1: there. were deaths in the mines over the years, but none were more poignant than one that happened in the early 1960s. Seamus Walsh explains.
4: On your left here now is the ambulance house. This, here, this is where the ambulance was parked. And when the miners are, miners' wives would see the ambulance out, it wouldn't be out every day of going for a joyrider, and that they'd be either somebody badly hurted or somebody dead. And the miners' wives said no did you hear who it was where, what part of the pit was it in because they knew where their husbands and sons were working and it would just be a nightmare when they'd see the, um, the the ambulance pulling up outside the houses or anything like that they knew there was somebody you know when you think of it there was only what, 600 people working here it would just be a small place really there was 13 people killed here you know, I'm sure the last the last to be killed was Ned Kelly he was only 15 years of age You know, and then I'll never forget it as long as I live I was, went to work that morning with Ned about four or five of us we assembled on Monument Row road cross and headed on to work and uh, yeah, Ned was killed at day so we went home as young chaps I remember dropping the bike down on the road and running into Mrs Kelly and say, Ned is had to be killed in the pit and she thought it was an April Fool because it was the first of April 1960 it was no joke but when she seen seeing the Locker's car pull up outside he had a yellow Volkswagen at the time her screams will remain with me forever. Even though she lived to be nearly 18 years of age, the day Ned died, part of her died too.
1: One of the constant risks underground in the Deer Park mine was flooding. Seamus Walsh explains to us what that meant.
4: Surely, when it closed down in 1969, mine and engineers said it would take three years for the mine to flood. And I and my father and my brother and my brother-in-law were salvaging girders, cables haulers, pumps, anything that was worth a few pub, to bring it up for Hammond Lane, we worked for Hammond Lane in Dublin they bought the, the site and all they wanted was the top stuff, so we went down in the pit and I couldn't believe the way the, the water was rising so quick and all I was entering my head was these mining engineers saying it was going to take three years, I set off to walk I put my heels against the water like that and walked real slow like this and looked around and the water was st- still at my heels, that's how quick the water was, was rising so it flowed out to the mouth of the tunnel inside three months um, we built a wall down about 30 yards six inch blocks in the flat and we built a wall up at the mouth of the tunnel here so you couldn't get down there
1: so as you've heard flooding was a constant battle that the miners had to fight when working in the Deer Park mine Willie Joe Mealy's father had a narrow escape himself
5: what, there was one night he went to go out and he couldn't there the whole place that shut down and he was trapped there was no other way out if the if they will say the pumps hadn't been gone that time, he could have been drowned, it would have come up and that'd be it. But he the somebody came down, it was in a place where he wasn't able to reach the telephone. But when somebody came down eventually because he should have gone up and he wasn't up, so they sent someone down and there to the shooting. And it was I believe scary enough but my mother didn't know that because she couldn't tell her things like that you know and um, they made a little entrance for him to get out and he was wary enough whether he'd go through it or not but they they told him to chance it and he did and they got to a point where they caught him and they pulled him and he wasn't long out when the whole place came down so, you are things, you know, that you have lucky escapes. One unique effect of
1: coal mining is the blue marks to be found on the bodies of the miners. Mick Brennan-Rowe and Timmy Wilson spoke to me about them.
7: What happens is when you come along and you get a cut, and you're, you're there and the dust, you Now, what what you do, you wouldn't be washing your hands straight away. Your hands would be dirty until you go to the surface and you go to the bats you wash you wash you strip off and you go into the showers then you wash them but the wash you wash them out there's still a bit of cold dust in them and they heal up heal up with the cold, cold dust underneath see them there now see the, the cold dust is there upon my hands where I got got clouds upon the upon the upon the knuckles and they the healed up and the dust is inside them and the same when we up and my arms, all up along my arms, there now the, the coal dust is there, and the same in my back. You strike your back off it, and the coal is, is very sharp. It's like a razor blade. The coal when the bre- the coal breaks, there's spikes out of it. And they, no matter what you they do, you get a cut in your hands. But nowadays they have all protective clothing. They have gloves for this for everything now which they hadn't at that time, we had no mask, no nothing at all, panels with the coal dust. And it's it's all, at the present day, I wouldn't think this, they'd allow anyone to go down with the mines now. Because the only thing is they'd they have protective clothing, they'd have gloves, masks, they have everything. All these kits, ready for to work now, in quarries and everything else, they're using them. But them days, in my time, they had nothing.
6: I was a left-handed worker now. They'd be lying on my left side, you see. And that's why there's more blue marks in the right hand than because I was going to the shovel that way, you know. Right.
1: And the blue marks would have been from
6: cuts? Yeah, cuts. You get big cuts, too. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> you? You, you would be half-nailing, but when you be eating or... You know resting. They didn't get all our time to rest. But to be, you could rest all day, but you have no money. Right. Uh, that, that was the time you would make yourself small. You see, because you'd be sitting in in a little place, you know, and you'd be making yourself small. Well, at that time I was only ten stone. Would you be fish? You imagine going after a tram and flying down a hill and you two guns in it. You know, the wheels stop it. You're swinging out. You'd be going more than 20 miles an hour. anyway.
5: Willie
1: Jo Mealy also spoke to me about the superstitions and folklore underground.
5: There was also the older miners. Like, the, the miners today are gone old. But there would have been young miners. And... They wouldn't listen to a lot of the stuff that older people were talking about. But the older miners that had have spent maybe 50 or 60 years in coal mines, they'd tell you that there could have been ghosts in the mines. There was things, that noises that, you know, that wouldn't be natural. And conversations... So my father often heard them, but he didn't He didn't mind, because he couldn't mind it. He, he, they weren't harming him. We leave the final word to
1: Seamus Walsh again, who has written a poem about another tradition underground.
4: I climbed into a steel cage and was lowered down below to dig out the hard seam of the castle comber coal. As I lay down on my side in the shadow of the mine, the memories come back to me on the, of the writing on the wall. The young lads carved their name on every whitewash wall and gate to let everybody know they were part of this damn place. I keep thinking of the time before I started in the mine and thought I'd never see the writing on the wall. I can still see the miners' faces as they stare out from the dark in the sweared and lonely places in our ever-haunting pass. But the miners' fight is over now. There's no more coal to fill. We're history in the making and time sadly don't stand still.
1: Thanks for listening. In the next programme in the series, we look at the miners' lives overground and the important role that women played in the Castle Comer mines.
0: Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down is a documentary series presented and produced by Martin Bridgman for KCLR with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.